Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. We give you praise and thanksgiving, Lord Jesus Christ, for gathering us here this night as we focus on the importance of scripture and tradition in the heart of the, in light of the Catholic Church. We ask you, Lord, just to inspire our hearts and our minds to come to a more deeper and fuller understanding of the beauty of the sacred scriptures and tradition. We pray uh, for a good new year. Uh, we pray for the blessings that we will endure this year. We offer all of this up uh, through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Mary Magdalene, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so... One of the things that came up in last year's surveys from the Tuesday and Wednesday night surveys was we want to understand Scripture. A lot of the, lot of the surveys say uh, for topics that we gave, um, ideas that we gave to uh, people, wanted, people wanted more Scripture. Kind of what does the church teach about the Scripture? What is the Bible? How do we read the Bible? Um, why? were some books selected and some were not. Now, tonight I'm going to talk about a lot of that, but I'm also going to reference to next week as well. Because next week we're going to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament specifically and kind of focus on why the Old Testament is so equally important uh, and why you can't read the New Testament without actually reading the Old Testament. So, But tonight what we're going to focus on is kind of an introduction to divine revelation. Um, some of you have probably, some of you may have heard this before. Some of you probably this will be very new to you. Uh, if you've ever taken a scripture class in either a college setting or a high school setting, this is pretty basic information uh, that we that you're taught in a scripture class. Um, and then also, this quote comes from Dave Verbum. Dave Verbum is the dogmatic constitution on the scriptures from the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council was held from 1962 to 1965. It's the last ecumenical council the church has had. Uh, probably my favorite of all the documents. Of all the 16 documents, this is probably my favorite. I have read it probably, I don't know, 12 different times. It's, but it's short. We think of documents as being very long, especially in the church, and some are. But this one happens to be very short. It's only 25 paragraphs. I think it's a total of like 15, 16 like pages, and they're small pages too. Uh, but it's, it's my favorite document out of, out of all the documents. Um, so let's talk about the Bible. So what is the Bible? So the first thing we have to understand is that sacred scripture and sacred tradition are known together as the deposit of faith. Um, sacred scripture and sacred tradition both transmit the word of God. Um, and it was entrusted, the word of God, both scripture and tradition, entrusted to the apostles who were led by the Holy Spirit to properly interpret it. The magisterium protects and guards both scripture and tradition. And when we read scripture in tradition and tradition, we must read it in light of the Catholic Church. Or we must, Read it in light of the church. Now, the magisterium, people ask, well, what is the magisterium? The magisterium is the official teaching office of the church, 
made up of the popes, made up of the pope and the bishops. So that's the when you when you hear the word magisterium, that's what it is. It's the official teaching office of the church, the pope united with all the bishops. The Bible is both inspired and inerrant, which means that God inspired the human authors to write it. We'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. As well is that the whole, the scriptures are also inerrant, which means they there's no error in the scriptures. Uh, and again, we'll talk a little bit more about that briefly, but I'll talk more about that next week because one thing that usually comes up is people say, well, what about like the Gospels? There's things in the Gospels that, you know, maybe Matthew says one thing and then Luke says something else. But there's actually, reason, there's actually reasons why that, uh, that is the way it is. Although the Bible is composed of 73 books, it tells us one story, that God created man, man fell through free will, he sinned, and now death is upon us. And really, the rest of the story of the scriptures is us focusing our attention back and, and, how, and bringing, our, bringing ourselves back to um, the kind of receiving salvation from God. So that's kind of the, the story of scripture. Sacred scripture is not the only authority for our faith. Uh, scripture alone is something that we often hear in Protestant circles, sola scriptura, but we also have sacred tradition. So if you have any friends that are Protestant or family members that are Protestant, they focus on the Bible. All you hear is the Bible, the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, I don't believe it. So, But as Catholics, we also focus on sacred tradition. Sacred tradition comes from the Latin word tradare, which means to hand on. It is the unwritten or oral record of God's word through his prophets and apostles, received under divine inspiration and faithfully given to the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Tradition is the living reality passed on and preserved in the church's doctrine, life, and worship. Nowadays, a lot of the traditions are written down, but in the early church, tradition was passed on kind of by orally, by word of mouth. Uh, and I didn't mention this to any of, the, any of the other groups, but I just thought about it. For the Jews to memorize things and to get them correctly, to get, them, to, get the, to get the ideas down correctly, was almost kind of like a point of pride. And, they, and if they interpreted things, you know, I used to have students say, well, what if, what if, what if one sneaky person wanted to, uh, like, change the story? Well, like, the culture, that wasn't the culture. That's the way we kind of think. But that's not, the way the, that's not the way the Jews thought. So memorization was very important. Uh, that's why so many of the Jews, they, they knew the Psalms by heart. They memorized, like we, we have a hard time memorizing a verse. They memorized chapters, okay? Well, what we know is chapters in the Bibles because it was one of the, it was a gift that kind of was part of the community. So tradition, one of the other places that we often see tradition is actually in the liturgy, in the Mass, so many of the things that we do in the liturgy come from the tradition of the uh, the traditions of the early church, but also traditions over the t over time as the mass organically developed. Um, and it's kind of an interest with, with with sacred tradition. Um, I have a priest friend who I taught with in Austin, Texas, who is the um, he's the chaplain at the Newman Center at. Wake at uh, ba Baylor University in Waco, and he said for a while he was seeing 
uh, kids come into the RCIA program. Now, Baylor, I think, is a Baptist school. And in the theology department, they have a Catholic who's a convert from, I think, I don't know if he's a Baptist convert to Catholicism or not, but he was a convert to Catholicism, and he teaches the early church fathers class, which is the writings of the early church fathers really from the first century to the eighth century, even into the ninth century. And he's teaching this class, and what father said, he, he found out after the kids were taking this class, he was finding them also in his RCIA program as well. Because once you started reading the early church fathers and realizing how Catholic the early church truly was, a lot of these kids that were non-Catholic were looking to become Catholic because of the things that they were finding out in this class and then eventually finding out more about Catholicism. So tradition is very important. We all have, as much as our Protestant brothers and sisters want to say they don't have tradition, there's even traditions within the Protestant faith. We just hold it up to be as important as the scriptures. Sacred scripture, again, is both inspired and inerrant. Inspired means breathed in, means that God himself guided the authors who wrote the books of the Bible. Inerrant means that the scriptures do not err. They always teach truth, never error. De Verbum, paragraph 11, says the books of the scriptures, the books of the scripture, firmly, faithfully, and without error, teach the truth about God. So, we have to understand that the human authors, when, they, when God inspired them to write what they wrote, he didn't do it by, he, he, the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. He didn't do this. I'm going to use it as an example. He didn't stand behind him and say, you are going to write this. Okay? That's not what he did. He inspired them using their intellect and able to write the things that they wrote about, about what they were inspired to, to write. Uh, so what do Catholics, um, how do Catholics read the Bible? There's actually three points. So we read the Bible through content and unity of the whole scripture. It must be read in light of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And the Old Testament prefigures the new. So what I mean by this is when you, when you read the New Testament, you have to look at the whole content of scripture. Because usually something in the New Testament has already been talked about in the Old Testament. We see this beautifully done in the liturgy, in Mass, where you get the first reading that's usually, so on a Sunday, you get the first reading that's usually uh, connected to the Gospel. So have you ever noticed that the first reading and the Gospel are usually connected? During Easter, all the readings seem to be connected. Even the, even, the, even the letters of St. Paul. So we see these, um, we see these um, the readings connected as they are. And the Old Testament prefigures the new. We'll talk ne next week about typology and the importance of typology and what typology is. But the Old Testament is key to understanding the New Testament. For many years, I, didn't, I was afraid of the Old Testament, scared the bejesus out of me, okay? I mean, it was just like, I don't want to touch it, it's, it's, okay? But once I started reading it, and then I had people that understood it and explained it to me, it came alive for me in a way that I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, it, it blows your mind how connected our Lord is to the Old Testament. 
We also have living tradition. We must read the scriptures in light of tradition. Sacred tradition helps us interpret the scriptures along with the magisterium. We are very blessed to be alive when we are because we have 2,000 years of tradition helping us understand the scriptures. Um, we have the early church fathers. We have, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas and all the great scholars of the Middle Ages to help us understand the scriptures as well. And then the last thing is the analogy of faith the harmony of the truths of the faith with each other. You can't interpret the scriptures and make it contradict with other theology or other scriptures. So the analogy of faith is that it all is connected, that what we read about in the Old Testament is also the same theology that we are seeing in the New. A good diagram of how the Holy Spirit plays with all three of these, all three of these uh, particular uh, pieces here is that we have the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the inspirator. He inspires the, the writers to write what they write. In tradition, the Holy Spirit then is the animator. He animates tradition to assist with the inspiration of the scriptures. And then the Holy Spirit, in regards to the magisterium, he's the guarantor. He helps protect and guard both scripture and tradition with along with both the, uh, the, the popes and the bishops. So what Catholics believe, what do Catholics believe about the Bible? According to De Verbum, we venerate the sacred scriptures as we venerate the Eucharist. Think about, think about that for a second. We venerate the scriptures as we venerate the Eucharist. That's how important the word of God is for us as Catholics. You'll get a lot of non-Catholics to say, oh, Catholics don't read the Bible, or Catholics don't know anything in the Bible, or Catholics don't know this, or Catholics don't know that. You may, if, if, I, if I was to tell you, if I was to say, um, you know, maybe different, different ideas or different, like, if I gave you a scenario in the scriptures, you could probably tell me what it is, uh, and more than likely tell me, it's, we know everything kind of by the seasons. Like, oh, that's right in Christmas. Oh, that's what we hear in Lent. Okay, we, we hear that in Easter. That's how we count. Or Pentecost, like Pentecost, like, oh, that's Pentecost Sunday, okay? We, we know these things by kind of the liturgical calendar and the liturgical season. Um, but, you know, for us, it's important. The, the, but even though the scriptures alone are supreme and are important, we also have sacred tradition. In 1 Thessalonians 2.15, it says, hold fast to the traditions passed down from the apostles. So that's St. Paul writing a letter to the, the church of Thessalonica saying the scriptures are important, but so are the traditions that we taught you. The traditions that I've taught you, that I've orally explained to you, are also equally important. And we should hold fast to them. Sacred scripture and sacred tradition, again, equal one source. They're, um, you know, they're, they're, I'm going to use this analogy later, but they, they, they're like two sides of the same coin. You, you can't separate one from the other. You have, and, and especially as Catholics, it's, I love having sacred tradition help me understand the scriptures better. Uh, because I've, I'm also looking at, you know, like a lot of the early church fathers and their understanding uh, of the scriptures. The church in the magisterium has the authority to teach without errors uh, in matters of faith, for the church doesn't error when it comes to faith and morals. Now, what's someone, and I forgot to explain this to the last class, but 
The magisterium. How do we understand the magisterium? So again, it's the official teaching office of the church. The magisterium, I can explain it like this. Um, it's the ESPN of the church. That's what the magisterium is. Let's say you take, um, are the sons even good? The sons are better this year. Uh, they're better than they've been, okay? So, you know, not, I don't know. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I used to be a Knicks fan, and they're, they, they're terrible too. So, um, all right. Well, basketball is probably the easiest way to explain it to you. So, let's say two grandmas go to the Suns game. Okay, they get free tickets. Okay, everyone's going to get free tickets. Two grandmas go to the Suns game. And what are they going to notice? They're going to probably notice uh, the, they'll notice, the, they'll know the score of the game. They might know some of the key figures on the Suns, but they may not know the opposing players. Um, you know, they might see the cheerleaders and say, oh, it was nice to see them come out and dance, you know, between timeouts. Um, you know, they're going to probably know the final score. They, 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 get, they get some of the game. Now you take two kids from any of the high schools around here that plays basketball, two high school boys, and they go out to play. They go to the game. They also get free, they also get free tickets. They're going to notice the same things the grandmothers are going to notice, but they might know all the players on the Suns and maybe even, those, even some of the players on the opposing team. They might know some of the plays that the Suns are actually doing on the court. They might know, oh, man, this guy's a great three-point shooter, okay? You know, like when Curry comes to town, okay? Like he just rains threes, okay? They might know some of that. They're going to know, they're going to know more than the grandmas are, are going to know. Then you take... Um, like two college basketball players, they know what the grandmas know, they know what the high school players know, and then they kind of know a little bit more. Okay, so the college players, that maybe the college seniors, they know a little bit more than the high school seniors. Then what you have is ESPN, who knows what the grandmas know, who knows what the high school kids know, who knows what the college kids know, but they know even more than even what, what all three of them. They know statistics. They know the statistics from the three-point line, from the free-throw line, okay? They know if the guy can cross over, can do a crossover dribble. They know if he's good with his right hand or left hand, okay? They've got statistics that go way back to, like, the 1950s, okay, with Kurt Russell going way back, or even, early, you know, in the 80s with, you know, with Kareem and Magic Johnson. They've got all of this information that they can provide that grandma and the kids and the college students may not necessarily know. If you ever watch a ball game, they come up with some of the most obscure statistics. My dad used to say, what the heck, does that even matter? Uh, you know, it was just like, so, so that's kind of what the church is like. You can study the faith, and you might have a good understanding of it. Father Chris and I might study the faith and have a better understanding of you, but then when we turn and look at the magisterium, they're looking at the 2,000 years, all the statistics of the church for 2,000 years. So that's kind of, when you think of the magisterium, think ESPN. Okay, so moving on. The catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that the Christian faith is not a religion of the book, but a religion of the word of God, and the word of God is Jesus Christ alive today. It's not just about a book. It's about what is in the book. One of my favorite quotes from the saints is St. Jerome's, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. 
He's essentially saying, if you do not know the scriptures, you do not know Jesus Christ. When I first heard this, this is one of those quotes that kind of like, was like an aha moment for me. It was kind of like when my faith exploded when I first learned the scriptures. I had that kind of that bam, kind of like the, the light bulb went on. This quote stuck with, my, stuck with me and my craw for a long time because I didn't know the scriptures. And I felt like if I didn't know the scriptures, I didn't know Jesus. So I took it upon myself to start learning the scriptures in Bible studies, and then eventually I went to grad school for theology and really dove into the scriptures and understand them. St. Jerome is key because St. Jerome translated the Bible, which was in Hebrew and Greek, to the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is known as kind of the vulgar Latin, kind of the Latin that the common person understands. You have what's known as High Latin and the, or Classical Latin and then Church Latin, and then you have the Latin Vulgate. Jerome took on the job that the church asked him to do and translate it, imagine translating the Bible from Hebrew, which he did not know, he didn't know the Hebrew language. When the Pope asked him to translate it to Hebrew, Jerome was like, sure, I don't know Hebrew, okay? So what he had to do was go to Jerusalem and study under Hebrew scholars that knew the Hebrew language and taught him the Hebrew language. And once he learned it, then he could translate the, the Old Testament into, into the Latin Vulgate. And then Greek, mainly Greek, and we'll talk about this next week with the New Testament, the New Testament was mainly written in Greek. And why was it written in Greek? We'll get on that next week. Jerome, the other interesting thing about Judaism, too, the language, I think it was up to, I'm pretty sure it was like around 800 A.D. 800 A.D., mind you. Judaism... The language had no vowels in it. So you had to learn the language by living within the community and learning the traditions of the community and how they spoke the language and read the language and wrote the language without vowels, okay? Write any word out and then take out all the vowels. And like, you know, how do you read it? Well, they learned it by with, with, within the tradition of the community teaching them. So the children learned it from their parents who also learned it from their parents and so forth and so on. So Jerome is important when it comes to scripture scholar and scripture study. And then the scriptures are really our map for the kingdom of God because that they help us understand what Jesus, obviously in the New Testament, is proclaiming, but then also what is leading up to the New Testament uh, in the Old. How was the Bible written? The Bible is a collection of many works written by different authors at different times with different languages. The authors used different literary styles. Um, the authors uh, wrote in their own styles, but God directed them on what he wanted written. The Bible is unlike any other human endeavor we've ever seen. But we have to remember that the authors are, will, are writing to a particular audience at a particular time in history to a particular culture. They presented their books in ways that the people of their time could understand, and at times their ideas of science is different than the, the ideas that we have of science today. The scriptures are difficult to understand, but through the church and guided by the Holy Spirit helps us to find truth in the books of the Bible in light of the living tradition. 
So there's different literary styles, which I'll talk about here in a second. But the idea that they're writing to a particular culture and a particular audience at a particular time is important for us to remember. Because even though the scriptures appeal to us in the, in the 21st century, the ideas, we sometimes try to take our modern culture and plop it into Judaism in, you know, 400 B.C. or 1,000 B.C., and it doesn't work because the, the authors, and we'll talk about this even more so next week, how the authors were writing to a particular audience and who they were writing to, especially the, the New Testament writers. And then the other thing is the idea of, like, physics and astronomy. You know, modern science, which the church fully embraces um, because so many... So many of so many of the great science, so many great scientific ideas and and, and theories that have come out actually have come from from, from uh, people and professors that were priests or religious sisters. Like the Big Bang theory, actually is a I forget his name, but it's a it's a priest who actually developed the Big Bang theory. But the idea of astronomy and physics in the in the ancient world compared to ours is different. The example I gave in all the other classes was uh, the seven days of Genesis in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, it's not seven calendar days. It's not seven literal days. Moses, who we believe to be the author of Genesis, wrote it for humans to understand it. But those could have been 1,000 years. They could have been 100,000 years. They could have been millennium. They could have been millions of years. You know, it could have been anything. But he, he writes it so when human, when human readers read it or were taught or, were, or they were taught what was in the scriptures, they could understand it better instead of, you know. Um, so that's kind of the idea. The, the question that always comes up, my wife actually asked me this question too, is when were the dinosaurs, uh, you know, in, all, in that whole story? So somewhere like around, we, I mean, we know kind of historic or scientifically that the dinosaurs and man, human beings weren't on Earth together. So probably somewhere like in day four, five, six is when the dinosaurs, and then somewhere around day six they got knocked out. Before, or like day five, they probably got knocked out, and then the human, and then we then we took over. So so that's the idea is that is the church embraces science and we look at science, but when it comes to the scriptures and particularly Genesis. The church isn't concerned of how the world was created, but why the world was created. So the, that's you have to kind of keep that in mind when reading the scriptures. So the Bible is sacred literature because God is its primary author. Even though the human authors are the, wrote the books, they're the secondary authors because God is the primary authors. Uh, and we see different literary forms that are used throughout the scriptures. That's why it's sometimes hard to read the Bible because you've got these different books within the larger canon itself. So we see stories. Jesus loved telling parables. It was the easiest way to, to make a point for him. We see poems. Where do we see poems? The Psalms. The Psalms are all poems. Um, we even see poems in Song of Solomon, okay? which is probably the raciest of all the books in the, in the Old Testament, okay? And it's not racy as we think racy. It's about the love between Solomon and, and one of his wives. Uh, and, it's, and it's when I used to play sword drills with my students in high school, 
I'd pick out these really wild verses in Song of Solomon. The kids were like, this was in the Bible? And I was like, yeah, man, this is how good, this is how good it is. So I, Song of Solomon, we actually used it for our, our first reading for our wedding mass. Um, you also have dialogue, figurative language. You have laws. Anyone like law? Anyone ever studied law? If you're a lawyer or been a law clerk, okay, the book of Leviticus is all for you and nobody else, okay, because it's dry. Okay, Leviticus is great, and it has its purpose, but it's very dry. My professor from, one of my professors from grad school, Dr. John Bergsma, he wrote his PhD thesis at Notre Dame on the Jubilee celebration in the book of Leviticus. I said to him, rolling of the eyes is exactly what, it's exactly what we all thought. And so I said to him, I kind of want to learn about the Jubilee. Can I read your thesis? He's like, no. I said, why? He said, because it's boring, okay? He's like, talk to anyone that's ever done a PhD. All their thesis, their, their dissertations are all boring. They're all just terrible. But nobody wants to read them. He says, I don't even read it. He says, my wife tried to read it, and she got through five pages. and was like, I'm done. She goes, because it's just, they're just like that. So, but if you're in the law, Leviticus is all about you. Uh, there's creeds, there's biographies, there's genealogies. We see genealogy in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 1, there's a whole reason in Matthew chapter 1 why John, or why, excuse me, why Matthew is writing the genealogy. Okay, and we'll talk about that specifically as well next week because I'll focus on that. Okay, all this like 23, what is it, like 23 and me. All everyone's trying to figure out where they come from, you know, if they come from, like, everyone seems to come from, like, famous people, okay? All right, it's like, um, but someone on Facebook, a friend, a friend of mine on Facebook, somebody put, one of their friends put it up, and somehow it showed up on my news feed. I don't know how it happened, but she's like, oh, it was related to five saints. I'm thinking, how is that even possible, okay? But the whole idea of the genealogy of trying to figure out where we come from that's kind of like where genealogies are rooted in. Okay, the other thing we have to remind, we have to remember that we have different, different personalities of the authors led to different literary techniques. And, the, and keep in mind that the Bible is ancient literature. Ancient authors did not write like modern authors write. The ancient authors are not trying to appease 21st century writers in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, Dave Verbum states that in sacred scripture, God speaks to man in the human way. The reader must be attentive to what the authors truly wanted to affirm. So we're used to read, when we read stuff in the modern world, we read it linear. We read it from point A to point B. And that's the way we read most things. But the ancient authors, and we see it in, especially in the Old Testament, and we see it amongst the saints, and even John Paul II wrote like this in some of his works, they write in a cyclical manner. So they kind of write like this, okay? Instead of going from point A to point B, they kind of write like this. And then sometimes they go back. And then without telling you, they're going to go right back to the next. Like St. Teresa of Avila, this is what it's like when you read her. I read her a few lengths ago. Oh, my gosh. I had to read pages over pages after page after page over and over again because she'd make like three points. And then go back to the first point, and then without telling you anything else, she'd, go, she'd start with the fifth point. So you're like, oh, sister, you're killing me, okay, because it was hard to read. 
That's the way the ancients read. That's what we see sometimes in the Old Testament. We see that in the Old Testament, so you have to be aware of that. The Bible is also religious in nature. The term religious comes from the Latin word that means binding. In the ancient world, the ancients actually wrote in a religious way because their whole life, their whole culture was based on their religion. So the way they wrote was based, so like today, we have people, you know, we have, we kind of like separate our religion from our regular life. You know, on Sundays I do that, but then I, you know, I do something else during the week. But for the ancient world, it wasn't like that. Everything, including their religion, was always part of their everyday life and upbringing. The Bible authors describe history through the eyes of God. And in fact, all history in the Bible is really salvation history. God's plan to save us from the unfolding, or God's, God's um, plan to save us unfolding through the ages. You know, we fell with Adam and Eve, and then from there, he's bringing us back all the way until the time of Christ. And that's really what we call salvation history, is what we see in the scriptures. There are two senses of scripture. There's the literal sense, and that's literally what the human author is literally writing, and then there's the spiritual sense, the meaning expressed by the biblical texts when read under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So there's literal, there's scriptures that are very literal, and then there are ones that have a sense that they're, they're not taking literal, but there's a spiritual sense to them. And within the spiritual sense, you have these three subcategories. You have the, anago- uh, the allegorical sense, which are all the events in relation to Jesus Christ. So any of the, I have a poster, and I'll bring it next week. There's like 100 prophecies in the New Testament that are fulfilled by Christ from the Old Testament. So we, we think of even like the sacrifice of Isaac uh, is correlated to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The moral sense is the events that should help us to act justly, to, to decide our, our, our actions with, um, with good intention. I'll give you an example of what this is. In the scriptures, we talk about our Lord says, you know, if, you're, if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off, okay? He does not literally mean cut off your right arm, okay? It's not a literal sense, okay? There are faiths out there that take everything literal in the scriptures. That's not literal. What he's saying, or like I'll give you another example, like it says, don't worry about the splinter in your neighbor's eye when there's a log in your own, okay? So sometimes we go after other people for having sins, but probably, the, the, usually, the sin is in our life, and it's even greater than it is in our neighbor's life. It, you know, if, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, poke it out. Not literally poking out your eyes. It means learn how to, you know, if, if your eyes are causing you to sin, you need, to, you need to figure out a way to not allow your eyes to allow, allow you to sin. If your mouth, you, you have a, I mean, St. Paul talks about the mouth. If you have a problem with your mouth, he says put a bright, like a bridle, like what a horse, like what horses have, put that in your mouth if you've got a problem. Now, not literally, but he's like saying that that's what you have to do. You have to control the way you say things. So like there are certain scripture verses that speak about morality, and that's what that is. And then an anagogical sense is viewing the scriptures in relation to our eternal home, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. 
And that's looking at the scripture verses. And there's a lot of them. Jesus talks about heaven just as much as he talks about hell. So that's looking at those scripture verses in relation to what are they saying about, what are they saying to us and how should we approach those scriptures and how our, our understanding of heaven. Now, let's be honest. Reading the scriptures is not easy. It's hard. I found myself many times kind of weeping and like trying to figure out what the scripture said before I really started to study it. But the beauty of it, and I mentioned this before, is that we have 2,000 years of tradition. We have the church, which gives us the ability to be our guide to help us understand the scriptures in light of the living tradition. Self-interpreting the scriptures usually leads to confusion and conclusions that are incorrect. Um, so the church has an understanding of what certain scriptures, I mean, we look, at the, we look at certain scriptures, and the church has an understanding of what it's been, what it's been teaching for 2,000 years and through the tradition of all the people that came before us that, you know, teach us what, what we understand about. So like, so, like, you can go down the street or, you know, go anywhere in town, take a scripture verse, and go ask some Protestant communities what they believe about the scriptures, and, and more than likely, everyone tells you something different. Oh, this is what this means, or this is what this means. So for us as Catholics, we don't self-interpret. Like, oh, Matt, John 6 means this to me, but it means something different to you. No, okay? That's not the way we, that's not, that's not the way we interpret the scriptures. This, we, have, we interpret the scriptures in light of what the church has taught us for you know, and, and the beauty of the early church fathers, those nine centuries, the early church fathers really, everything should pass through the early church fathers because they gave us so much. And then you look at, then you think about like Thomas Aquinas. He did a whole commenta commentary on the scriptures. Um, and, and so, you know, you go, um, again, like you go to different places, people will tell you different things about the same scripture verse. Also, if you cherry-pick scripture verses, you could pick, you could take any modern-day ism, just think of a modern-day ism, and you could find a scripture verse that will support your argument for that ism. That's if you cherry-pick it, if you kind of just find it, find certain words to fit those arguments. I watched a few years ago on one of the cable news networks two Protestant pastors arguing back and forth on the eye. On the, so it was, polit, it was a, one of the political shows. So from the left and the right, and they're both arguing their points by using different verses in the scriptures. And they're all, both, they're all wrong. I mean, they were all wrong about, I mean, one of the verses is like, that's not what that's talking about. But he, he used it to kind of say, well, because it mentioned this, that's why I'm going to use it for this argument. So again, you can, I mean, there's a lot of them out there that you can, uh, you can find some kind of justification. So it's important for us not to self-interpret the scriptures, but have the living tradition of the church help us with it. Okay, so the canon is important because it's what we have today. This is known as the canon of the Bible, okay, the canon of scriptures. Um, this is my book. I've had this, this is my Bible. I've had this for probably 11 years or so. It's written in. It's highlighted. It's got all. It's. It looks. I. I opened this up to like John, the Acts of the Apostles. 
And people are like, oh, my gosh, dude, that's just crazy. Okay, it's just, and don't be afraid to write in your Bibles because it's, 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 a, good, it's a good thing to do because you make notes. So the Bible is divided into two sections, Old Testament, New Testament. Both parts are equally important. De Verbum says in paragraph 15, they're both equally important. You have to read both to understand both. Uh, there, uh, Father Peter Stravinkis in his book, The Catholic Church in the Bible, says that they are like two brothers united together. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't read one without the other. So, you know, I've had friends say to me, well, we have the New Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. I'm like, no. You have to read the Old Testament to understand the New because so much of the New Testament is is coming from the old. Um, and the writers, a lot of the, we hear the writers referring to the Old Testament as the scriptures, um, especially in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when they say the scriptures, they're referring to the Old Testament. Our Lord, when he quotes the scriptures, he's referencing the Old Testament. So how did the church determine what books belong in the Bible and which books did not? Did not? The key reason, the number one reason why this was compiled was not for a Bible study, but was for use in the liturgy. That's the whole reason the church put this together in the fourth century. These books that are in this, that are in this Bible, that are in this canon, are suitable for the liturgy, for Mass. For, so Mass in the fourth century, which it looks very similar than it does today, it looks similar to what we have today for Mass, that's the whole reason this was put together, for use in the liturgy. And as we know, there's two parts of the liturgy. There's the liturgy of the Word, and then there's the liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, and the liturgy of the Word is just in part, just as important as the liturgy of the Eucharist. Because we don't rush, we, don't, we shouldn't rush through the liturgy of the Word so we can get to the Eucharist, because they're both equally important. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI wrote an amazing document called Verbum Domini, which actually was the document that kind of continued from De Verbum. And in that, he talks about the importance of, he literally spends probably 25 pages on the liturgy, well, maybe not that much, but probably 25 paragraphs on the liturgy of the word and how important the liturgy of the word is as it proceeds to the liturgy of the Eucharist. When the early Christians went to liturgy, when they went to Mass, they heard readings from the Old Testament and then letters and stories about the life of Christ. So when the early church first gathered, they would read the Old Testament, read the Old Testament writings. And then as St. Paul began to write his letters in the early 50s A.D., a lot of those letters then started to circulate throughout the other church communities. See, we're, we're familiar, we're, we're, we're used to St. Mary Magdalene, Our Lady of Guadalupe, St. Anne's, Holy Cross. We're used to all these different parishes within the Church of Phoenix. But in the early church, there was usually like one parish. They didn't really use the term parish for uh, probably until about the 4th or 5th century when you had multiple parishes popping up and kind of developing. So in the early centuries, like in Acts of the Apostles, the Church of Rome really was one central place that the Christians came to in Rome. Those Christians that were in Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey, they would go to one particular location, in Thessalonica, 
or Galatia, any of the any of the any of the you know Philippi, any of the cities that are in the ancient world, there was like, and that's where the Christians would gather, and then there they would celebrate the liturgy. So the so the church actually had to decide what was suitable for the liturgy and which were not. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the church developed the canon of scriptures. Okay, the Greek word is kanon, which is a reed or measuring rod or straight rod or bar. So this, for Catholics, is the measuring rod for scriptures. Because there were other scriptures that were written in, uh, in, the, New Te- or in the centuries pertaining, and you know, kind of after, after the time of Christ. The inclusion of the book in the canon meant it was divinely inspired. So we believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were divinely inspired by God uh, to be written by the authors. Other books were rejected because they were not divinely inspired, namely the not, what's known as the Gnostic Gospels. They were written two to three hundred years after the fact, or two to three hundred years after the time of Christ. They're, they're kind of whacked. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. They're, they're, the theology's all wrong. It doesn't concur with anything that Jesus says. I mean, there's stuff that's just bizarro. You can read them. People will say, oh, the Catholic Church is trying to keep the Gnostic Gospels for people to be read. No, I had to read them in grad school, okay? I, I read some of them, okay? They're odd. They're, they're just, they don't, they don't concur with what our, what our Lord teaches us and what we see. And the other thing, what we see in the other Gospels, the other thing is that they were not eyewitness accounts because they were written two to 300 years after the fact, after, after our Lord. They weren't eyewitness accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all eyewitness accounts. Matthew and John were apostles. Luke was an early Christian. And John Mark, or, or Mark, this is the Gospel of Mark, Mark was actually the translator for St. Peter when Peter started um, kind of going around and doing missionary uh, trips and uh, prophesizing and, you know, spreading the gospel message, really, is John Mark was his translator. So they're all eyewitness accounts. They all, had, they all interviewed people that were eyewitness accounts. The canon of the Bible was compiled in what's called an ecumenical council, so like the Second Vatican Council. It just didn't happen like that. The Bible was compiled over about 100 years in more regional and local councils, and then eventually, in the Council of Hippo in 393, the church th- decides that these books are what would go into the canon. The city of Hippo is where St. Augustine was bishop of. If you know St. Augustine, you're familiar with St. Augustine. St. Augustine um, came from that city and was bishop there, but it's in mod- it would be modern-day Algiers. Is where and it was on the coast of the Mediterranean uh, in modern-day Algiers. In the ancient world at that time, is nowadays in North in North Africa we see Islam pretty much ruling all of North Africa. But in the ancient world, it was mostly Christianity until eventually the development of Islam. And then the Council of Trent in uh, in the 16th century on April 8, 1543, they set, kindly formally defined. The canon, this, that even though the church had been using it for 1,200 years, there was a formal definition that said, this is our canon. These are our scriptures. The reason why Trent does that is because Trent is an answer to the Protestant Reformation. So everything that Luther brings up that's wrong with the church and the Protestant Reformation, Trent handles it all. 
and fixes a lot of those problems, as well as saying that this canon, this Bible, is the Catholic Bible, because Luther had already, had already taken books, and we're going to talk about that in a second, the books that he took out, and um, he started removing books and already translating it from Latin into German. So the, the, the Catholic Church wanted to say, no, this is our, this is our canon, this is our scripture. The books that Luther took out and that also we see that were also rejected by Judaism are known as the deuterocanonical books. In Greek, it means second book or second canon. And it's also could be in Protestant Bibles in a section called the Apocrypha, which means hidden. Uh, so it may not necessarily, like I've, I have a couple of Protestant Bibles at home, um, and I have them because I've done exegesis uh, papers before, which is the examination of Scripture, and you need different translations, including, including the King James versions and other versions. So I, I found them at bookstores when I was in grad school. So within the pages of the canon itself, you may not have these books, but some Protestant Bibles have what's known as the Apocrypha. Some of these books are in the back. A lot of them just don't have these books. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were doing a Bible study here, and someone showed up for, with, with a Protestant Bible. And I said, oh, we need to look in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. And this woman's flipping through it, and she's like, I can't find it. Well, she had a King James Version of the, of the Scriptures, and it's not in there. It wasn't even, there was no Apocrypha either. There was no hidden section in the back. Protestants will reject these books for stating that they were not part of the canon during the time of Christ. Um, now, not all Protestants will say that, but some will say that these, we reject these books because they weren't part of the canon during the time of Jesus Christ. The problem is there were five different canons during the time of Christ. There wasn't just one canon. Judaism did not put together their official Hebrew scripture canon until about the same time the church was doing it in the 3rd and 4th century. So for many years, you had, well, let me go through these real quick. So the, Deuterocanon sorry, the Deuterocanonical books are these seven books and then parts of, of Daniel and Esther, okay? I mean, there's so much rich stuff in all of these, all of these books in, when, you're, when you get married in the Catholic Church, one of the Old Testament selective readings comes from the book of Tobit. Wisdom is one of the books we believe to be written by King Solomon. Uh, one and two Maccabees is phenomenal. Okay, it's about a mother and her seven sons who rebel against the Greeks who are trying to destroy their culture and their religion, Judaism. Um, read... 1 and 2 Maccabees. If you're a mom, it'll be hard to read 1 and 2 Maccabees just because of what the mother endures when she watches the sons go through what they do. But it is in a, they are, we also see the idea of purgatory also in the Maccabee books. And then parts of Daniel and Esther. Daniel's very apocalyptic. Not all of Daniel has been rejected, just parts of Daniel. And then Queen Esther, Okay. I mean, she's awesome. She's a B.A., man. She's just rocking, okay? She cuts off somebody's head. One of the kings that she goes up against, she cuts off his head, okay? It's one of the figures of the, one of the Old Testament figures for the Blessed Mother because the Blessed Mother steps on Satan's head, okay, and the snake's head. Um, that's where we so many, so many images of the Blessed Mother with her head, with her, with her foot or heel on, on, the, on Satan's, on the, the uh, serpent's um, head. 
Esther is one of those figures of the Old Testament that prefigure Mary. And then again, the Jews rejected these books because they weren't in Hebrew, but a lot of them were written in Greek or Aramaic. Um, so they were placed in, they were written in Greek and Aramaic originally. Um, and so that's why, that's why we get that, why we, why we get the rejection. And then the five different canons. So during the time of Christ, this is what you had in Judaism. You had these five different canons. And when people say, oh, we don't follow the Catholic canon, when Protestants say this, uh, we don't follow the Catholic canon, then we follow the canon during the time of Christ. Well, which one do you follow then? Because here's these five. So the Samaritans, two of the five books of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the first five books of the Bible. They only, their canon was only two of those books. I don't know which, one, which ones particularly, but there was only two. Um, the Samaritans, you ever heard of the Good Samaritan? That's the Samaritan people. Or the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. They were, the Jews didn't, didn't like them. They rejected them. They thought they were, it, well, they called them half-breeds because they were a mix of the Assyrians that conquered the northern kingdom after the kingdom split, after King David died. And the, the Assyrians that came in and the Jews that remained, after they made it and procreated, you had the Samaritan people. So, um, so that's, that's the Samaritans. Jews rejected them completely. But Jesus actually brings them back into the fold because they're, they're, they're like a mix of Gentile and Jew. Sadducees, they actually had the first, they had the five books of Moses. The Pharisees had a larger canon, uh, which was similar to modern-day Judaism. Uh, and then the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were part of the Sanhedrin. They all hated each other, too. Couldn't stand each other because they were two different groups. The only time they got along was when they killed Jesus Christ. That's the only time they got along. They couldn't stand each other. Wanted to be, they didn't want to be in each other's company. Well, when it came to killing Christ, because Christ ticked all of them off, okay, and called them all out numerous times, they all came together. The Essenes were also part of the Sanhedrin, but didn't have the stature that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had, but the Essenes are important. The Dead Sea Scrolls that we're finding in, we're still finding them in caves in the Holy Land, the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by the Essenes. The Dead Sea Scrolls actually confirm a lot of what's in our Old, our, uh, Old Testament. They were, a, um, they were uh, a very pious group. They were, uh, they were kind of, how do I say this? Like end times. I can't say that word right now. So very much about the end times. Eschatology. There it is. Okay, or eschatological is the other word. So, um, that's the, the, they're, they focused on the end times. They were essentially like a modern-day religious order. They were men that were celibate, that essentially uh, lived a very celibate life, lived a monastic life. We hear about them in the scriptures when we, when we the man that carries the jar on his head in the scriptures, or he just carries a jar, I think he carries it on his head. He carries a jar on his head. That was more than likely the Essenes. Because women carried jars of water. Men didn't do that kind of work. They did other work, but that was the work of, of, of women in the, early, in the early centuries. And then you had Diaspora Judaism. They are Jews that did not return to the Holy Land after the exile, but they lived in the Mediterranean countries, and they spoke Greek. 
and they themselves had a, had a, um, had a canon that is similar to our Old Testament, to the Catholic Old Testament, or what's also known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So that's kind of the, was their canon. So when people say to you, if you ever hear that, oh, we follow the canon during the time of Christ, you're going to have to ask them which one, because there were a lot. And again, it wasn't until about the 3rd or 4th century that the Jews started to put together their own official canon. And then, now, the Hebrew scriptures today is not the same thing as our Old Testament. They're different because of the, because of the Deuterocanonical books as well. Used to drive me nuts when I taught theology, first years of teaching theology, and I used to sub, and we used to have books that said the Hebrew scriptures. I'm like, no, we don't follow the Hebrew scriptures. Our Old Testament is different. So, so the main point is that there was no official canon during the time of Christ. Whew. Okay. I, I, I could drink some more water and go for another two hours. This is right up my alley. Okay. Any questions? I know it was a lot. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's just, so canon law is essentially the laws of the church. We use the term canon, and, and so canon, if you use it in the same term, it's the laws that are like the measuring stick for the church. It's not Leviticus, and we'll talk about it next week. Leviticus is actually the precursor to canon law. No, when canon, canon law is separate from the scriptures, yeah. The only thing that we see that is like the book of Leviticus, which are all those laws. So canon law is not necessarily, that's the laws of, that's the, laws of the church. Yeah, and that I don't know. I'm not, yeah, you have to ask a canon lawyer. So there's, we, got, we got a few of them at the diocese. So, okay, so one other, uh, next week I'm going to have some handouts for you. I'm going to give you a couple handouts, good places to go to find good scripture, uh, information, scholars, websites, stuff like that. Uh, also going to give you a handout. i got to find it at home. It's probably in my library at the house. I have a, a, a how to read the Bible chronologically, and I think you can do it in a year's time. So i got to hope I can find that. I think it's somewhere at my house. The only announcement I have for you before next week is if you have a third grader, fourth grader, or fifth grader that is preparing to receive a sacrament, you can now start to turn in your paperwork. Next week, particularly, is when the godparent sponsor, or really the sponsor form, is due, either, the, either really for you guys on the 16th. So uh, you can turn that into the church before, into the parish office before next week, but we can also turn, you can also turn it in next week as well. If you have any of the forms, I'm going to have like a little, I'll have a little handouts over there, little um, trays for you to put them in there, Okay. Any questions, feel free to come up and ask me afterwards. Let's just end in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. We give you praise and thanksgiving, Lord Jesus Christ, and offer this up as we say, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. St. Mary Magdalene, St. Jerome, in nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, amen.